Hello, and welcome to this beautiful Tuesday morning, Oregon. The manhunt is over. After a period of heartache and mourning, there's finally a glimmer of hope for the residents of Stony Creek. Police have arrested the man who is suspected of murdering and gutting his daughter, 17-year-old high school senior, Jessica Morrow. Stony Creek police say that Henry Quinn was captured early this morning in Blaine, Washington, attempting to cross the Canadian border. He was airlifted to the local hospital where he remains under police supervision. This is the second arrest for the 38-year-old Stony Creek resident, originally a suspect in Emmett King's unsolved murder back in late February. Emmett, as many of you may recall, was Jessica's boyfriend. After months of alleged stalking and harassment, and though Jessica's DNA was found on her biological father's discarded clothing, Quinn continues to assert his innocence. He states that Stony Creek's legendary endgrave is behind the recent deaths that have plagued the small town. With his trial set for the end of this month, Mr. Quinn's appointed lawyer, Rhoda Orlov, has released a statement saying that she's expecting her client to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. My name is Adam Langdon. I didn't know Jessie Morrow well. She wasn't my friend. I don't know what music she listened to. I don't know what she thought about before she went to bed. I don't know what her favorite subjects in school were, or what she wanted to be when she grew up. I'm guessing she wanted to be a journalist, or a PI, maybe a lawyer, or a cop. I don't know. I don't know how she lived, but I do know how she died. I was there. I was listening to her show. To this show. I heard her scream for help. It was the first time I've left my house in a long time. But I had to go. I had to try. By the time I got to the studio, Henry was already there. Wait. We tried to save her, but we couldn't get in. She wouldn't let us. She thought she was going to save us all. She thought she could kill him. She thought she was going to be the final girl. That there was a reason why the engrave had kept his distance from her until now. She thought it was her destiny. She was wrong. You see, there are windows in these Coast Meridian recording studios. Henry couldn't see because, well... Before we could break down the door, I... I could see everything. Then Graves stood in front of her and pulled her in with his words, with his love, with his comfort. We could hear her cry. We could hear her scream. Then we heard her stop. He had turned. She thought it was her father. Peter Morrow. All of a sudden, she could hear him. She could see him. She could love him and remember him for the first time in her life. And then he killed her. Of course, I know it wasn't really Peter. It was a lot of things, I suppose, that killed her. Her broken heart. Pride, the end grave. 
it was Stony Creek. Jessie was awesome. She did drama. She was super smart and super sweet. You know, everyone loved Jess. I remember this one time where she and Noah Bentham. God, he's dead too, isn't he? This is so fucked up. Let me tell you about Noah Bentham. What's wrong with people, you know? You ever wonder what the hell is really wrong with people? I mean, I don't feel safe walking into Milton's anymore. I guess in the back of my mind, and I hate myself for admitting this, but I used to think the whole Henry Quinn stalking thing was just seeking attention. But clearly I was wrong. What do you think about how Henry is saying that the Engrave did it? Yeah, sure, then the Engrave did it. Of course, for saying that, that means Henry's the Engrave. The legend of the Engrave is a load of horseshit. I feel bad for Henry, in a way. I definitely also think he did it, but he's crazy, right? He probably really does believe that there's a monster in the woods that comes out and kills people. I think it's safe to say he has no idea that he's the monster, right? So you don't believe in the Engrave? No way. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'll never go into those fucking woods again for the rest of my life. But yeah, no, there's no way. Hey, did you listen to that radio show she was trying to do? No. Were people actually listening to that shit? I heard she died on air. Are you fucking serious? How do I hear this? You can't right now. It was on 1640 AM. Whatever. I don't listen to the radio. I think I heard on the news that Henry Quinn was her dad. Henry is technically her father. Her biological father. But she didn't know him. So I don't really know what the answer to that would be. Isn't that a thing? It's always the ones you love the most that lead to your undoing. Hey, thanks for talking to me. Sure. Before we get started, can you state your name and tell me a little bit about you and your friends? My name is Jenny DiDomaso. My friends are, um, word, I don't know. I, you know, actually, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't even know you. I I'm Adam. I knew Jesse. Right. So what are you trying to do here? Jess had this sort of radio show. She was trying yes, to... Yes, I, I know what she was trying to do. She wanted to tell a story, and I suppose I'm just trying to do my best to finish it. Why? I don't know why, Jenny. Why did you agree to talk to me? Well, who the hell else am I supposed to talk to? All my friends are dead. I'm sorry. Did you listen? Not to that episode, but most everything else, yes. So you know who I am, then? No, I don't, Adam. I know your name, and I know what your voice sounds like, but I don't know you and you don't know me. 
So let's start then. You go first. Um, well, I've technically known Jesse since forever. That we officially became friends in the third grade. My mom made me invite the entire class to my birthday. It was a block party with face paint and uh, roller skates and hot dogs. The whole neighborhood put it on for me. The Morrow Dennings family brought Jesse and Emmett. Jesse's mom invited the Benthams, who had a son my age in another class. Noah. Nothing. Nothing happened. There wasn't. There was no like, special thing that brought us all together that day. Nothing that united us. But we all played. And that was that. And you and Jess were best friends from then on? When Seth Krakow cut off her, her ponytail during Sadie Everly's book report in the fourth grade, I didn't stop talking to him like she asked. And I didn't get up and cheer with Noah when she fucked up her song in The Lion King. I shrunk in my seat, mortified to be next to him. She, she came to me when Emmett, she, um, she told me what he, what he, what he looked like, what she saw. It was the worst thing I had ever heard. Watching her experience that was the worst pain I ever felt. And I, and I told Anusha about it. And she told someone else and it became a thing that people just knew. I shouldn't have done that. And I should have gone with her the day that she got lost in the woods when Noah picked her up and saw whatever it was he saw. But I was afraid to be alone with her. I didn't want to see her crying anymore. I really fucking hate myself right now, you know? I had a best friend once. His name was Jason. Henry's brother, right? Jesse's uncle? Yeah. We met when we were 15 at a lacrosse tournament up in Vancouver. We were the only two from Seattle and really hit it off. After his mom died, Jason and I moved to Port Moody to start our own company. Contractors. Everything sort of fell apart after he met his wife. They got pregnant right away and he took whatever construction job he could get. We were still friends, but it was never really the same after the baby came. Which I get. Baby's name is Henry Duncan, by the way. Jace named him after a brother he loved and a father he never knew. Henry Duncan. Jesus, kids cursed. One night he knocked on my front door, drunk. Drunk, just drunk. His sister-in-law was just found dead in the same forest where his dad died decades earlier. He became obsessed with the story he had heard over the years about a demon that lived in the woods. Sometimes we went looking for him. I never really believed in him until it was too late. Anyway, they're all gone now. Beck and the baby moved to Powell River to be with her parents after Chase died. They abandoned their house and just sits there. Empty. Furniture still inside, her husband, her father-in-law, her sister-in-law. They all died in the woods just 
outside her front door. I, I think Beck was scared for her kid, for Henry. I, well, one time she heard someone calling his name from the forest, calling out for Henry. She could hear it all the way inside her house. I, I told her it was probably nothing. I don't think I believe that anymore. You think you'll still go looking for him? I don't need to. Anyway, I couldn't save Jason the first time around. Couldn't save Jess the second. So what's the point? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I have the show, you know, Jess's show. She recorded it. I, I was thinking about turning it into a podcast, release it. Maybe if word got out, it, it could help free Henry Quinn. Maybe the police won't believe it. Why would they? I doesn't even believe the impossible, but... I don't know. Maybe the world could. I could do it. I could go. Maybe I could be a better person, a better friend, if I could just get there. I could try and find the engrave, kill him, save someone. Although it's hard to be a better friend when you have no friends. Why not? There's no one else to save. I see him every day. The Engrave. My wife Tracy sees him too now. We've moved. We live in Point Grey now. Far, far away from Stony Creek. But there's no escape. So, we've stopped hiding. He's with us every day, watching. Our memories are spotty, here and there, little things. We write everything down to remind each other of the love we share, of the life we live, but neither of us remembers our fathers anymore. He's taken that from us and tries every day to latch on and connect to that void. He preys on the pain of that loss we struggle with daily. But we know what he's doing now. I've seen it. We won't pull back his hood. We know his secrets. We know his lies. And still, he tries. The engrave stands over our bed and watches us sleep. He cries for his lost boy, waking us during the night. He walks with my wife to the grocery store. He taps on my foot almost consistently throughout the day, everywhere I go. Everywhere. Even now, he's with me. He's standing in front of me on the other side of this microphone, a foot from my face. Angry, still, and cold. He watches me. Now I watch him. His sweater isn't black, like everyone says. It's gray. It only looks dark because he's covered top to bottom in dirt and mud. What he is, it is, it breathes. Like Jesse said, his chest rises and falls. I can feel his chilly breath slip between the shadows of his hood, an enormous unearthly hood that cloaks a face I've never seen. 
The width of his arms matches my wrists and they hang limply, stretching the length of his body with his hands resting on the ground. As for the bandages that wrap the parts of him that's exposed, they're not bandages at all. It's skin. Decayed. Dangling. Charred skin that floats angelically in the wind and traps his tortured soul within his own personal and eternal purgatory. It's Steve Duncan. It's Jason Quinn. Emmett King. Bill Jeffries. Noah Bentham. It's Jessica Morrow. It's the people they loved and the people who loved them. It's Jenny DiDomaso. It's Henry Quinn. It is the Endgrave. And it's everyone he's ever touched. He lives in me. And he lives in you. Next season on Stony Creek. We had been on the Greyhound for 10 hours when the driver pulled into the emergency loading zone at the small hospital. Mrs. Manhass, traveling with her grandson at the back of the bus, had a severe vertigo attack and needed to be tended to by someone other than a seven-year-old. The driver took a turn off the five that Google Maps didn't know existed and we pulled into this town. This fucking town. My wife said she saw a wooden sign at some point that said, Here lies Stony Creek, which thoroughly creeped her out. But the place seemed cute, quaint, and there was a hospital, so here we came. how long we'd stay so my wife took my son and daughter for a snack and a bathroom break and I stayed on the bus answering some work emails while they unloaded Mrs. Manhas and her kid. We'd only driven a half a block before I even noticed we were moving again. I wasn't paying attention. I was responding to a fucking email from my fucking intern asking for some extra couple days off over Thanksgiving. But we had only moved one half of a block before I clued in and realized my wife and kids weren't with me. I could see the three of them running from the hospital and toward the bus from the window. My son Elijah spilling his Dr. Pepper as his mom pulled on his arm. My daughter, Mora, tripping over herself while trying to sidestep a massive puddle that formed over a clogged storm drain next to the curb. My wife, Rose, her twisted face as she screamed out for the driver to stop the fucking bus. I rushed to the front in a panic and 
no one cared. It was as if no one noticed me. As if I didn't exist. Not one person looked at me as I closed my eyes and pried the doors open. When I jumped out, they were gone. I've been looking for my family for 42 days. It was a half of a block. I guess at this point, I guess it just feels like I don't know if they're the ones who are missing. This episode is made possible by you, our listeners. Thank you for your downloads, subscriptions, ratings, and reviews on iTunes. You are incredible. This episode of Stony Creek was produced by Daniel McKechnie and Mike Pence. You can learn more about the show and its team over at stonycreekpodcast.com. You can also follow our mysterious town on social media through Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Stony Creek Pod. Thank you to our producer, Ali Bernacki. The Stony Creek theme and score was created by the amazing Evan Duffy. Artwork by Jahan Carluin, and Helene Carluin runs our website.